Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Maine's governor says no. Massachusetts lawmakers? Maybe. New Hampshire and Rhode Island are off and running. Will Connecticut say yes to sports betting this year? Today, where we live, we dig into the debate. Coming up, we hear how sports betting has rolled out after a 2018, 2018 rather Supreme Court ruling legalized betting on sports events. Now, Governor Ned Lamont has staked out a position after trying for more than a year to reach a deal with the state's tribal nations. This week, he released a statement saying he supports a sports betting bill that includes the Connecticut Lottery and off-track betting vendor Sport Tech, in addition to the Mashantucket Pequots and Mohegan tribes. That's what the government, the governor rather, has said. But there are competing bills in the legislative committee that oversees gambling in Connecticut. And we know lawmakers and the governor don't always agree. We're going to hear more about these bills uh, coming up in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to welcome back to the show Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Here's the number to call for our listeners if you have questions about sports betting or you um, have a strong opinion whether the state should legalize or maybe not expand gambling. The number 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So when we think about sports betting, Mark, uh, it is what it sounds like. You're placing a, a wager on the outcome of a sporting event Tell us about some of the ways that people can actually place bets on sports uh, that we're seeing uh, since the 2018 uh, decision by the court. Sure. Uh, There are any number of states that have done this. Uh, I think it was 14 at last count, and it seems to be growing month by month. Um, There's a variety. Some limit the betting to bricks and mortar outlets where you have to go in. Uh, But the real money is in online betting. Um, Connecticut right now, if you want to put a bet down on a horse race, you actually can do that online now in Connecticut. Um, Connecticut's off-track betting vendors have the legal right to uh, take bets online, and in fact, they do. Uh, So the black market or the gray market has really driven the push for this. You You can do this now. Uh, with offshore sites. It's not legal to do so, but there's really no way you're going to get caught. The risk is, will the folks you're doing business with offshore actually pay off? Um, But that has really, I think, normalized this for a lot of folks. The American Gaming Association estimates that Americans wager about $150 billion a year on sports illegally. And again, we're mainly talking these offshore accounts and not, you know, the old-fashioned bookie, you know, at, at your neighborhood bar, that kind of thing. Um, now, people, some people say that estimate's way too high, but even the low estimate is $60 billion. You know, that, that's what you mm-hmm. generally see. So this becomes the argument in all these states. Once the Supreme Court lifted the federal restriction on states doing this, most of these states are saying, hey, our people are doing it now, so Mm -hmm. let's do it in a way that's regulated where the state 
gets the revenue and not an, some offshore company or your local bookie. I was surprised when you said that you can uh, place bets on horse racing online already in Connecticut. Is that because it was prior to this tribal compact that was agreed upon? Well, that's an interesting point because the tribes claim their exclusivity deal with the state. And let's, I guess, let's back up a little bit of history. So when Governor Weicker uh, was in office in, in the 90s, the deal he cut with the tribes was, okay, you have already have the authority as recli- federally recognized tribes to do table games. We're going to let you do slots, but you're going to give us 25% of the gross gaming revenue. And in return, we're going to offer you exclusivity on all casino games. Now, at the time, that was huge because they owned the Northeast market. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question is, what is covered by that exclusivity? The, the tribes refer to different classes of games. Under federal Indian gaming law, class three games cover casino games, but also in class three are paramutual sports betting, um, horse races, highlights, and so forth, lotteries, keno. So it's, it's not completely settled as to what is a casino the game. The tribes understandably take a very broad view. So that's one of the things that they're arguing about right now. So yes, the tribes never objected to uh, the online betting on sports because it was already uh, in play, although not the online piece, but the, sport, but the betting on horses. Yes. But, that, but that's an interesting point because – the biggest problem for the state right now in doing sports betting is this question of did the tribes have exclusive rights? Um, this has been completely negotiable with the tribes on other areas. Keno, for example, uh, which the lottery offers, that's also a class three game. And the tribes initially said, we have exclusive rights, but they, they negotiated a deal. They negotiated a revenue sharing deal. So the, each tribe gets 12.5% of what the lottery makes off of Kino. Kino is not huge yet. Um, the state uh, state's general fund made about twenty million bucks off of Kino, which sounds like a lot, but <laughs> overall the lottery contributes three hundred and seventy million dollars to the state's coffers uh, last year. You mentioned that the tribes are obviously um, among the players who want to get in on sports betting. The Connecticut Lottery Corporation uh, is also part of a possible industry. And then this uh, off-track place. Uh, sure, Sportex. Sportex, the, the vendor that owns the rights to off-track betting. They have licenses for, I believe, 18 uh, OTB parlors. Uh, they haven't used all of them. Um so here's, here's what people need to understand. There's generally a consensus in favor of doing sports betting in Connecticut. That's not really the issue. The great complicating factor is how do you do this given the state's relationship with the tribes and the question of exclusivity? Um, the governor is proposing to share the market and to negotiate that. Um, the tribes so far are digging in for exclusivity. So until they can settle that, nothing's going to happen because 
nobody's going to risk what the state now gets from the tribes. 25% of the gross gaming revenues from slots. Uh, it's not worth what it was because there's greater competition. At the peak uh, on the eve of the Great Recession, it was $430 million a year. But it's still $250, $255 million a year. And nobody's going to jeopardize that. But but anyway, but that but when everybody gets frustrated and say, why is it so hard in Connecticut when all these other states are doing it? It's because it's very complicated on that. The state has to cut a deal with the tribes. Otherwise, if you go forward with anything less than exclusivity, you are risking the $255 million a year. You're hearing Mark Pasniokas on Where We Live Today, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. As we learn more about the, the debate surrounding how sports betting uh, may roll out uh, in the future uh, here in the state of Connecticut, coming up we're going to get a more uh, context about how this uh, sports betting has rolled out in other states. But you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mark, you mentioned hundreds of millions of dollars that these uh, tribes uh, give give to the state of Connecticut through this tribal compact. If sports betting is legalized, how much money would the state be getting from that? Well, that's a good question. The estimates are really all over the map. Um, in one of the bills now before the legislature, the one that Senator Austin, who whose district includes both casinos, she assumed about $13 million in revenue to the state. You know, the estimates have been some legislators have estimated it could be worth $60 million a year eventually or more. Uh, the Office of Fiscal Analysis, I think, is somewhere around $15, $16 million. Um, Rhode Island, which now has sports betting, they assumed about $23 million. So, you know, as the gamblers like to say, pick them. <laughs> is it about this getting this additional revenue or helping – the tribes who, as you mentioned, have seen uh, their their revenue declining over the years because of all of this competition now in the Northeast. And then you think about the people that are employed at these casinos, helping shore up what the tribes have been able uh, to build in the state and help the state as well. No, th that's a good point. This has value in two ways to the tribes. Obviously, revenue is revenue. It'll bring in more revenue. But in addition, what they've seen in New Jersey is that the foot traffic increases, you know, 4 percent, 5 percent. There are varying, um, varying uh, statistics that I've seen. But um, the Mohegans who operate the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut and they have business elsewhere in the U.S. and, and quite frankly worldwide. And they've seen, you know, 5 percent bumps in, in some of their casinos when there's sports betting. So – they they would like to see it, again, to be competitive because in Rhode Island, they have it. New York is expected to get it. Massachusetts is looking at it. And they don't want to be the only casinos in the Northeast that cannot offer it. You reported again earlier this week that a private meeting between the two tribal nations and Governor Lamont ended badly. How close were they really on, on a deal? Not very. Uh, so the significance of, uh, of what the governor did this week is he has stated publicly what we sort of guessed was going on. And by going public, he is now, before the legislature, kind of called out the tribes and said, look, here's the deal I have on the table. My view is it's reasonable. The tribes obviously would get to do it at their casinos. And then as far as the off-reservation business, including online sports betting, 
would be shared, as you said mm-hmm. at the top, by the tribes, by the OTB vendor, Sport Tech, and uh, by the Connecticut Lottery. Mm-hmm. And you know, legislators who are not in the middle of this fight, the ones I talked to, seem to think this is a reasonable approach. But you know, what we don't know are what are the internal tribal politics, um, what are the pressures on the leaders to negotiate a better deal, namely exclusivity. Um, there's no secret that the Mashantuck and Pequots have have significant financial difficulties. Um, they carry $2 billion in debt, uh, which the Mohegans do as well, but the Mohegans are in a different financial position. They've been in an expansion mode. The Pequots uh, defaulted on their loans in 2009, and it was an incredibly complicated process to restructure. It took five years for them to cut a new deal with their lenders. And, you know, some of it's public, a lot of it is not. Um, But the sense is they are on a short leash with their lenders and they're under pressure to really maximize. So one of the things that the Pequots, I think, really objected to is that the governor's bill is only about sports betting and they would have to share. Senator Kathy Austin's bill is much broader. It would be a major expansion of gambling because it would allow iGaming on your smartphones. And what that means is you could sit, we could sit here and we could basically play virtual slots on our phones. We could do roulette. We could do uh, electronic uh, blackjack games. That's a major public policy shift in Connecticut. Um, There has not been that debate. They have not explored what that would mean about problem gambling. Uh, but the sense is that long term, that would be a lucrative market. And that seems to be what the Pequots are really pushing for. Again, coming up, we're going to talk more about these competing bills before the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, Representative Joe Varengia will be joining us. We did reach out to Senator Kathy Austin, uh, who was unable to join, but she did uh, send us a statement that says, I don't think the governor should have rejected the bill, this more encompassing, wide encompassing bill that uh, she had put forth. I can count the number of ways the governor is making a big mistake here. I believe, Mark, that the Senate Democrat leaders were also backing Senator Austin's bill or showing support? What have you heard from them since Governor Lamont has now staked his position? So at the end of January, they stood with Senator Austin in support of her bill. Um, What was unclear is did they view that as a finished product? In other words, would we go for the whole enchilada which includes some a new casino or two. Yeah, well, the, a new <laughs> casino in, in Bridgeport. And, and so that, that it, in itself is kind of a complicated side issue. Um, rights to a Bridgeport casino, believe it or not, are not considered valuable, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the arguments for the tribes to get rights to other things. You know, if the tribes are going to do a Bridgeport Casino as an economic development project for a city that could use some economic development, their argument was, you know, give us rights to online gaming and sports. Um, Because the reason Bridgeport is not a valuable site to them, they would be cannibalizing their own customers. You know, it, it would be a casino between their New York customers and the two casinos. Um, 
it's not seen as something that would greatly expand their base. So if they're going to cannibalize their own customers, they, they wanted something on the back end. And that something was online gaming and exclusive rights to sports betting uh, at their casinos and online. Before we head to break, I have to ask, what in the world happened with the plans by the two tribes to open East Windsor? A casino in East Windsor, or yeah. I'm sorry, a slots. Uh, no, no, it's it a, casino. a casino. It's okay. table games and slots. It's they, They're calling it a satellite casino. It's not going to be of the scale that Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods are, because those are two of the world's largest casinos, quite frankly. Um, they insist that they would still like to go forward. Um, right now, it's held up on a relatively minor zoning issue about how the town of East Windsor uh, gave them a zoning permit, which included a, a liquor license. And a Superior Court judge said uh, the liquor license part wasn't properly handled, but n- nobody thinks that's really a big deal. MGM, <clears throat> which is the target of that East Windsor Casino, it's it's designed to keep customers in Connecticut in the I-91 corridor instead of going up to Springfield to the MGM Casino. Uh, they have a lawsuit in Washington, and that goes to the Department of Interior acceptance of amendments to the Connecticut's gambling compacts with the tribes related to East Windsor. So, you know, there's that. And then there's the question of financing by the Pequots because they have some issues. Mm -hmm. And then there's another complication about um, uh, what is the what is the status of the relationship between the two tribes? Because there there seem to be some some tensions there. Again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. In studio with me, Mark Pazniokas, Capital Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We're going to continue talking about sports betting after the break. We did get this tweet, this stalemate between the state and the tribes. Make Connecticut late to the party again. People are happy betting with reputable offshore bookies. Do you agree with that? You can join us, 888-720-9677. Maybe you're worried about gambling expanding in our state. We want to hear from you, too. 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Here we are again talking about whether Connecticut will expand gambling. That's because this week Governor Ned Lamont announced his support of a bill to legalize sports betting, but he wants to open up open it up beyond the state's two tribes to also permit the Connecticut lottery and off-track betting to operate the industry. What's your take? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, We wanted to hear more about these bills before the General Assembly. I mentioned earlier Senator Kathy Austin, who would like to see the tribes get exclusivity for this issue, is unable to join us. But joining us now by phone to talk about his bill, a bill that Governor Lamont supports, State Representative Joe Varengia of of West Hartford, also co-chair of the Public Safety and Security Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Representative Varengia, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy, and thanks for having me, and and, uh, hello to Mark. Hello, Joe. Uh, Mark did a good job explaining uh, Lamont's backing of this bill, again, that would not give exclusive rights to the tribal casinos to operate operate sports betting. Uh, Tell us about uh, this bill, this very narrow bill that you have put together, and why you think it's a good idea for Connecticut to go down this path. Right. Uh, Essentially, where we're at today 
is that, as Mark explained, there's two competing bills. There's one bill that attempts to solve or address all of Connecticut's gaming issues. And then there's another bill that I endorse, as well as the governor, that would limit the discussion to just sports betting. And the reason for that is because we know, based on our recent history, that when we try to tackle uh, a comprehensive gaming policy for the, for the state, that um, there are many roadblocks and not much progress is made. So in an effort to move at least a part of Connecticut's gaming policy forward, um, the standalone bill is out there um, that just addresses sports betting. What is your response to what the tribes um, have said to you before your committee, but also their, in their response to, to Governor, Governor Lamont backing this much narrower bill? Uh, they're saying that there are the state of Connecticut has gotten hundreds of millions of dollars, and you're putting that gaming compact at risk if you try to open up sports betting beyond uh, the two tribes. No, uh, I, I'm certainly not endorsing a, a policy that would put uh, that money at risk. Uh, I am not looking to move forward on any gaming issue um, without our tribal partners. Um, this bill, uh, the standalone bill, um, would certainly include other stakeholders as well as our two tribal partners. I think the difference also is as part of a compromise, um, this bill does not allow for an open competitive process, meaning uh, other than the stakeholders that were mentioned, in-state stakeholders that were already mentioned, um, no one else is allowed to compete um, here in the state of Connecticut as part of that compromise and moving forward. The elephant in the room, obviously, is the exclusivity. Um, the tribes have um, stated their point uh, and articulated the fact that they think that um, or their opinion is that they have exclusivity when it comes to sports betting. And quite frankly, that's an open question. Um, there's compelling arguments on both sides of whether or not um, it is a casino game and what is a casino game, with, but without getting into the legalities um, of what, it, what, it, what that is. Uh, I think it's important that we continue to uh, work with our tribal partners to try to find a middle ground so that we can move a policy forward. Because we know, we know that, um, you know, if, if there's not an agreement, we certainly don't want to break up the compact. And quite frankly, we think it's the cleanest way to move our policy forward from a legal standpoint. We look at East Windsor and what's happening there, our casino game, and the casino bill that was passed um, a few years ago um, was riddled with some, uh, you know, uh, legal legal questions, and that's playing out now, and it's causing a delay. So, in an effort to move our policy forward today, not get caught up in the legal wrangling and further delay, um, I believe the best bet is the standalone sports betting bill. And I should ahead, just emphasize, I mean, as, as as Joe implied, nobody is talking about going forward with the bill favored by Representative Varengia and the governor without a deal with the tribes. <clears throat> nobody is talking about we're going to go into court mm -hmm. and see what a judge says. It's They will either resolve this amicably or it won't go forward is the message that everybody seems mm -hmm. to be delivering. Right, Joe? Yes, and, and that, that's an important point. Hey, listen, we we've had a we have a great relationship with our tribal partners, um, but 
the reality is the the gaming landscape has changed over the 30 years. The policy, the, the compacts that we're referring to were negotiated 30 years ago. And quite frankly, uh, to say that uh, the compact covers sports betting, um, I think that's a stretch. The sports betting wasn't legal 30 years ago. To, to, so to suggest that it was even considered, um, I, you know, I, I question that. And, and quite frankly, the other the other issue is, you know, we, um, you know, we have other partners in the state, and to exclude them, I don't think is fair. When we talk about the OTBs, um, they have invested in this state for many many years, and they have employees. And if you think about it, they're the only ones that can legally offer online betting now. And to exclude them, and to hand over the keys to any one entity, I don't think is fair. And quite frankly, it's not even good for the consumer. Representative Varengia, I wanted to just uh, let our listeners know, we did reach out to the two tribes. We did get a statement. James Gessner, chairman of the Mohegan tribe, uh, writes, the governor's proposal would put both the tribal nations and the state of Connecticut in an untenable position, resulting in certain litigation and ongoing missed opportunity for Connecticut taxpayers who would continue to watch neighboring states grow jobs and revenue in this area as Connecticut stands still. Again, a statement also from Rodney Butler, chair of the Mashantucket Pequot Nation, uh, who writes, the governor is seeking to avoid endless legal challenges, but seems to disregard if the legal challenge is from the tribes and costs the residents of the state hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm just wondering when you say that you don't want to put the, the tribal compact in jeopardy, nobody wants to move this forward without the tribes coming to the table. Aren't they being pretty clear that they don't see room to negotiate here? Well, you know, that's the problem, right? I mean, that's that's why we haven't uh, moved forward with our, with our gaming policy. And the hope is that because um, just as much as we want to re- remain uh, competitive, right, in, in our gaming policies, especially what's going on around our neighboring states, uh, I would hope their goal is the same, and I'm sure it is. So therefore, I think it's in the best interest of both parties to come together and continue that negotiation and come up um, with an agreement that's good for all. Mark Pazniokas with the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, since uh, Governor Lamont um, put out that statement earlier this week, uh, do you know if the, the tribes and the governor's office are looking to, to work together on this, have another meeting about it? <clears throat> Not yet. Um, and again, the what are the complicating factors here is uh, – do the tribes have the same objection? Do the tribes have the same objectives? There is a sense that it's more important to the Pequots to have the broader bill, the ability to do online gaming, which uh, you know I, I think we should ask Representative Varengia, but it, my sense is that Connecticut is not ready for that debate, that that is a big step and that that is something that would not be uh, possible this year, which is why the representative and the governor are pushing for this narrow bill, which, again, there seems to be a consensus. Sports betting is here. Let's do it. And But the question is, how do you make an accommodation with the tribes? The governor's position is we put a reasonable position on the table. If you want to come back to say let's tweak that, Let's have that discussion. But right now, the tribe's position is all or nothing. Mm. Representative Renji, did you want to respond? Yeah, I mean, um, like Mark said, the the money is really in iGaming, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm certain that um, 
the, the tribes want to want to pursue that. But as much as I am generally for the expansion of gaming, uh, I, I can say I think with a great deal of confidence. I don't think the state of Connecticut is ready um, for internet gaming that would allow. Uh, basically, people, and I think Mark said this in an earlier segment, that would allow people to turn their phone into a slot machine. That is a big jump, um, and that deserves more um, public input and public debate um, before we go that far, which brings me back to the point is that's why uh, I think the governor is on the right path with respect to, hey, listen, if we're going to move any part of our gaming policy, keep our gaming stakeholders competitive here in the state of Connecticut, then let's try to work on a standalone sports betting bill. Representative Renshia, how do you respond to residents who, they don't want to see any type of gambling being expanded in the state of Connecticut because when you look at addiction issues, uh, we reached out to uh, our colleague, Frankie Graziano, who's reported on sports betting. He spoke to a woman who runs the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling last March. As we know, New Jersey introduced sports betting and mobile sports betting. Uh, This woman, Neva Pryor, said the council's hotline in New Jersey was experiencing a 22% increase of calls after the introduction of sports betting. We followed up with her, and she said since last March, there's been an overall increase of 27% in helpline calls, people who are dealing with compulsive gambling. So how do you respond to residents in Connecticut who don't want to see that happen here? Uh, Good point. And and just for full disclosure, in every conversation that I've had with respect to any um, gaming expansion, I've always included uh, the problem gaming folks. They've been part of that discussion. In fact, my bill actually would um, give money, additional monies to problem gaming. But if we're looking at problem gaming, I don't think it's fair just to look at the expansion of sports sports betting, uh, I think we need to look at that holistically. And when we talk about the expansion of casinos in East Windsor, and now the possibility of another casino in Bridgeport, um, we need to look at that closely in in deciding how we're going to move forward with any expansion of uh, particularly casino gaming. And, And you have to look at the broader context. Don't overlook the Connecticut lottery. The Connecticut lottery last year sold $1.5 billion dollars in tickets. Um, there, there are issues there as well. You know, and the most popular part of the lottery are these instant scratch tickets. So right now, you can go into any convenience store and you know, they're the most expensive instant tickets are $30. And they generate um, 58, 57% of all the revenue. So you know, Connecticut is is a state that years ago was, you know, we still had the blue laws. You couldn't get a drink on Good Friday until somebody went to court in, in the 80s. And now we are a huge gambling state. And it's it's been a very dramatic shift, I think, culturally in, in Connecticut. So that's the larger context. Uh, we're hearing from Bethany on Twitter who writes, isn't it true that unlike casino gambling, online betting takes money only from Connecticut residents and doesn't increase jobs? And so, again, when you think about the overall revenue that's projected if sports betting is legalized, Representative Varengia, um, is it is it worth going down this path again? Uh, no, it's, it's in that sense, in a total uh, dollar sense, it's not a big dollar number. But what it does, it it helps our uh, particularly the tribes, our, our gaming industry, remain competitive with our neighboring states. 
I understand, Representative Arengia, that you're not running for re-election. Uh, you've been a co-chair, I believe, of this committee for a while now. What are the real chances you think that this will be resolved this session? You know, it, it, it's all up to, to the uh, the parties that we spoke about uh, throughout this whole interview, uh, are trying to get together. And, and I think even listening to the statements for the first time on our tri- um, from our tribal partners, uh, it, it just, it's more of a reason why we need to get together and continue that conversation. And it's on both sides. You know, it's, it's never good to, when you're negotiating, to draw any line in the sand. So to the extent we can make progress and move uh, a bill forward uh, during this session, um, that would that would be great. Mark Pazniokas with the Capitol Mirror, you've, or Connecticut Mirror, rather, Capitol Bureau Chief, you've been covering uh, this issue, among others, for, for many years. Uh, what are you going to be watching for in the next few weeks? On this issue, it's really going to be do negotiations renew between mm-hmm. the governor and the tribes. Remember, the tribes are, are sovereign governments, and the negotiations really have to be between them and the governor, the head of state. And the governor has made clear he's he's not going to budge much on this, that the revenue must be shared. They're not going to get exclusivity. So it's I think it's really in the tribe's court. Do they want something or are they going to just continue this stalemate and get nothing on sports betting? Well, we appreciate your time. Mark Paziokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks, Mark. And we'll tweet out links to your stories as well at Where We Live. Thank you, Lucy. Also with us today, Representative Joe Varengia, a co-chair of the Public Safety and Security Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. He represents West Hartford. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear how other states have rolled out sports betting. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As you know, everyone's talking about this new coronavirus. So tomorrow on Where We Live, we're here to help answer your questions. We'll talk about what Connecticut's doing to prepare for a potential outbreak, how employers are responding, and when researchers expect a vaccine. So again, if you have a question about coronavirus, we want to hear from you. You can join that conversation online and uh, on air on the next Where We Live tomorrow. Now, today we've been talking about this debate about sports betting in our state. We wanted to get some perspective about how sports betting has rolled out in other states and just the the history of people putting on wagers for sporting events. Joining us via Zoom now is Mark Edelman, professor of law at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business in New York City, where he specializes in sports law. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, as we heard earlier, sports betting uh, was illegal in states up until a few years ago. What led to this Supreme Court ruling uh, that legalized sports betting and the basic argument to allow states to go forth? Well, the illegality emerged uh, in 1992 when Congress passed what was known as the Professional and Amateur Sport Protection Act. Uh, that was a law that was supported uh, very much at the time by the sports leagues. And it sought to disallow individual states that did not already have sports gambling from legalizing any new forms. Uh, 
Uh, so it limited the traditional form of sports betting to Nevada, and it limited the limited forms that were already in place in three other states uh, to remaining exactly as they were. Uh, the state of New Jersey decided right around 2013 or so that it wanted to have sports gambling both online uh, and in its casinos uh, as a way to try to revitalize uh, the struggling casino market in Atlantic City. Uh, they filed a series of lawsuits trying to argue that the federal ban on sports gambling uh, violated their rights as a state. And ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, cited to a rarely discussed aspect of the Constitution, the anti-commandeering clause, and found that the mandate that the federal government control what the states do in the area of sports gambling, even when limited to within state commerce, uh, would be commandeering the interests of the states, and thus found that the Professional and Amateur Sport Protection Act of 1992 was unconstitutional and removed it from the books. Mm. Uh, why did sports leagues actually support this ban, Mark? You know, um, historically, sports leagues have been spooked by the idea of sports gambling. Uh, a lot of it could go back to the 1919 <laughs> season when eight players on the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series uh, and it came out years later that there were allegations that the 1917 Cubs were offered money to throw the World Series as well. Uh, the leagues were afraid that if there was betting on sports, there might be corruption and encouragement of athletes to lose on purpose. And because a big part of the reason why fans follow commercial sports is outcome uncertainty, uh, they risked that this would kill their golden goose. Hmm. You mentioned that 1919 uh, scandal. Uh, when we look at public opinion, uh, they associated uh, betting and sports gambling with organized crime? You know, that's been a case for a long time. And, you know, part of the reality is uh, the illegality of sports gambling historically uh, created an opportunity for organized crime to make a large sum of money. Uh, and if we think about it and imagine any activity uh, that is currently illegal on both the state and federal level. Uh, and it makes no difference whether it's something we think is okay or something more unseemly. Uh, think, for example, about the sale of illegal drugs or prostitution. The reality is we live in a world where there are going to be people that want to buy those services and people that want to sell those services. By making such industries illegal, uh, it doesn't make the buyer and seller go away. It just makes the reputable business person who understands they want to comply with the law, as well as perhaps comply with the moral norms of the time, walk away. Mm -hmm. When you don't have legal upfront markets, underground black markets emerge. And organized crime has been able to very efficiently, from their perspective, uh, fill an underground role of providing opportunities to bet on sports uh, when it cannot be done above ground in a legal way. Oh, Mark, what's your reaction to the rollout since that 2018, again, Supreme Court ruling? I believe there's up to 20 states now that have some format of sports uh, betting in their particular state. Are you surprised that they're of that, about that number at all? Not at all. Now, amongst the 20, less than half of them at this point have online sports betting on one's phone. Uh, the state, most of the states that have legalized sports betting in their casinos uh, or at racetracks uh, this is not a huge revenue creation uh, mechanism. If you think of the size of a state and the number of casinos that are actually in most states, uh, it still would require a trip for most people to go there 
uh, and it's a small augmentation on what they already have for casinos. Uh, from a bottom line perspective or an industry growth perspective, uh, those states that have legalized online sports gambling uh, is a lot more interesting. And the growth of that, for better or worse, is where the focus really needs to be. Uh, there's a huge fundamental difference between people being able to go to four, four casinos, maybe in a six-hour driving radius from the center of the state to place a bet on sport, uh, and the idea of everyone's phone being able to be used to allow people to bet at home. And it's that latter opportunity, which we're still looking at less than 10 states that have allowed, uh, where the real issue is, will there be tremendous growth? And what will that mean uh, in terms of tax revenue generated, in terms of opportunities for which businesses to thrive on this? And then, as I believe mentioned earlier in your show, uh, how do we curb issues of problem of pathological gambling as recognized under DSF-5, uh, given this growth seems likely, if not inevitable? When we talk about the ease of sports betting on people's phones, this, this again, is iBetting? That's what you're referring to? Um, you know, some people use the term iBetting. Uh, it's not a term I particularly like. And some people say iBetting. Some people like e-betting. E uh, frankly, I just prefer the very simple betting on sports on your portable device or betting on sports on your phone, uh, which, frankly, is what it is. You know, you always have some entrepreneurs out there uh, that like to throw the letter I and the letter E in front of something and make it try to sound very special. But it is what it is. It frankly is the ability to bet on sporting results from your phone or personal device. When you were listening to the debate here in Connecticut, we have a complicated uh, history again with gambling because of this tribal compact. Are there any other states where this has come up? What's your response uh, to uh, this policy uh, trying to be put forth in our state? You know, in a broad sense, uh, in many of the states with large Native American populations, uh, there are very real issues and compromises that need to be struck uh, between the state and the tribes. You know, one that's most interesting to me is the state of Arizona. Uh, leaving aside traditional sports gambling, daily fantasy sports, uh, which is similar to sports gambling. It's an activity that's available online, but you're picking the performance of multiple players over multiple real-world games. Uh, I extensively consult for daily fantasy sports businesses through my um, consulting firm, Edelman Law. Uh, in the state of Arizona, even though most states allow daily fantasy sports, uh, that activity would be deemed to be a felony. In fact, any unlicensed activity by a company, even if it involves the smallest amount of chance, is a felony. The reason why Arizona is so tough on this activity that most other states and many other states allow is because of a very strong tribal um, lobby that want to maintain gaming exclusively in their own control. Uh, so the particular issue in Connecticut about passing a new bill and having to have an agreement with the tribes in advance uh, is a distinctly Connecticut issue. Mm. Uh, but the complex relationships of intertribal relationships, uh, the power of the tribes in lobbying, and two groups with very different diverse sets of interests, uh, one coming from big business that if we want to be honest about, big business is overwhelmingly white and the other coming from the tribes, uh, which historically have been discriminated against groups who use gaming as a way to increase their own commercial value, uh, is a real intense and real concern dispute. And the lobbying on both sides is quite strong. 
You're hearing Mark Edelman on Where We Live, uh, joining us via Zoom, professor of law at Baruch's College and Zicklin School of Business in New York City, where he specializes in sports law. You know, earlier, Mark, we heard from someone that said people are happy betting with reputable offshore bookies um, as we hear of more states allowing sports betting uh, within their borders. And how has that impacted, I guess, the, the, the share of people that are, that are still, again, betting with these offshore uh, uh, sectors? Well, even in the states that have legalized online gaming, uh, the one benefit, uh, leaving aside legality, uh, that someone might see in betting with an offshore company uh, is because the offshores are not licensed uh, and because they do not pay taxes within the states in which they operate, leaving aside the question of whether it's legal or illegal, uh, the offshore's expenses of operation are a lot lower. And because their costs are lower, uh, they can continue to offer lower rates of bigs, which means keep a lower share of the fee from gambling uh, within those states. Now, with that said, uh, there are a lot of reasons where, and again, leaving aside the law, and the law should be a good reason to stay away from offshores, that even if you're indifferent to whether these companies are legal or not, uh, the offshore companies frankly scare the heck out of me. And to be really frank, one of the biggest issues that offshore companies have long had and will continue to have is based on the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006. Uh, reputable payment processors in the United States uh, know that they cannot collect and pay out funds uh, from these offshore sports clubs, which means that even if it's difficult to get someone that's based in Malta or based in Panama extradited to the United States for operating a sports book, uh, it's a lot easier to go after the Visas and MasterCards and American Expresses and the PayPals of the world. So they have to slip and use a secondary class of payment processor, uh, which is not based in the United States uh, and does not fear extraterritorial jurisdiction coming from the United States. Now, these payment processors scare the heck out of me because first, in many cases, uh, there are a lot smaller, less formally established companies. Uh, it's more it's difficult to challenge them legally. And quite frankly, uh, in an era where we have such great concern about identity fraud from the provision of information, uh, I would be very hesitant as a personal matter to share um, proprietary information and confidential information that I would expect to be protected under privacy policies uh, with a payment processor that's based offshore that is working with companies that they know are operating in violation of New York, of United States mm -hmm. law. So I think that's the big concern that the payment pro that the offshores will continue to have. Uh, some people love them because they're more affordable, leaving aside the legal issues. Uh, on the other hand, whenever you're dealing with companies that are not operating in the color of the law, uh, you have to wonder what are the things they're doing and how comfortable you are sharing financial information with them. Mark, we just have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, earlier, I mentioned that sports leagues uh, were actually again, or actually were supporting this ban on sports betting within states. Uh, what are what are the sports leagues saying uh, today uh, when we think about the NFL and others? Well, you know, if there's one constant theme between the teams of the sports leagues that has been rational with all of their decisions. It's they want to maximize their own revenue. Uh, these teams are run by big business capitalists who want to make as much money as they can from operating the teams. Back in 1919, and for many years, they did not want sports gambling uh, because they were afraid, first, they would not profit from it directly, and second, they'd risk the golden goose if their games proved to be corrupt. Uh, more recently, um, team owners and leagues have found creative ways and all types of ways to profit directly and indirectly from sports gambling and that's changed their views. Now, one of the most interesting things to me that you see the sports leagues trying to do uh, is they are now trying to convince states that are legalizing sports gambling 
uh, to either give them a share of the revenue directly from the sports gambling companies, uh, or alternatively, even though there's no intellectual property right requiring that people that want to use sports betting purchase data from the leagues are allowed to self-collect, uh, they are seeking new intellectual property protection to try to mandate that gaming operators purchase stuff that they otherwise would not need from the league for a fee. So in essence, what we're seeing the sports leagues and their owners saying is, yeah, we support this, but we support this as long as we can make a lot of money from it. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't be surprised. That's all uh, the NFL needs is more money. <laughs> uh, Mark Edelman, we want to thank you for joining us today. Professor of Law, Baruch's College, Zicklin School of Business. That's in New York City where he specializes in sports law. We appreciate your perspective. Thanks again. That's my pleasure. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. We have a new senior producer on staff, Tess Terrible, and she'll be producing tomorrow's show all about coronavirus. Again, if you have questions about this new coronavirus, we'd like to help answer your questions with our guests that we have lined up. That number to call tomorrow, 888-720-9677. And you can put a question on Facebook or Twitter. Just search where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. 